Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Genevieve Reed, a barrister and secretary of the Pupillage Committee at Redline Chambers. In this episode, Genevieve and I focus on the application process for barristers. She shares her thoughts and tips for applicants, covering everything from applying for pupillages through to a more general discussion as to what the bar is actually like. Let's get into it. So, hi Genevieve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and exactly the type of episodes I love to record when it's on a subject that I know nothing about, which is pupillage. <laughs> um, as a future trainee solicitor, obviously, I've been through the application process on the solicitor side of things, on the commercial law side of things. Um, so I know a bit about that, but I have absolutely no idea what it is all about when it comes to pupillage um, and having spoken to barristers and QCs that I know um, I do know that there's some differences but there's also some similarities um, and I think like any job application process getting some advice from someone who is on the other side of that interview desk and is the one actually recruiting candidates such as yourself is obviously going to be really valuable and really useful to students um, so thanks again for coming on I'm hoping that this is going to be a really really valuable insight and episode for any kind of aspiring barrister out there who's uh, who's listening in. Um, before we get too much into the pupillage thing, though, um, a kind of nice question that I like to ask people when they come on the show is a bit of an icebreaker, is why did you originally want to work within the legal profession in the first place? Uh, and for people who haven't met you, what's your sort of background to date? Um, so I think probably there was too much Rumpole of the Bailey playing in my house when I was a <laughs> child. Um, and people always said to me I'd end up on the stage or in court. So when I was, I think, probably 12, I told my mum that I was going to be a tap dancing barrister which sadly hasn't proven to be uh, possible mm-hmm. um, but when it came to the crunch I ended up doing my degree in English literature at Queen Mary mm-hmm. um, or had always sort of thought that I might end up going into law and certainly on the barrister side um, being quite an argumentative person I think that was probably <laughs> the best fit mm-hmm. um, by the time I got to the end of my degree I was sort of tossing up between going into law and converting and becoming a barrister or doing something like publishing and um, mm. something like that but ultimately I ended up deciding to convert so I did the GDL the graduate diploma in law at City Law School um, which I think probably at that stage was a much better decision for me having gone from I think about eight contact hours in my final term on an English degree to nine to five <laughs> yep. law lectures um which actually was a shock to the system, but I enjoyed it. But certainly um, better for me to do that in my 20s rather than as an Mm 18-year-old. Went on then to do the bar professional training course at City Law School as well. Applied for pupillage many times before I actually got pupillage. And in the meantime, I worked as a paralegal, I think it's two or three firms um, Mm -hmm. whilst I was applying, sort of treading water. But that's gave me great practical experience for when I did then eventually get pupillage and I finally got pupillage at Redline Chambers. I started there in October of 2014. Mm -hmm. Twelve months later, happily was offered tenancy, so was able to practice from that chambers full-time as a member of chambers. Um, And I've been there ever since. And now um, I sit on the the pupillage committee as well, so now that's mm-hmm. sort of sitting on the other side of it, I'm still remembering what it was like to apply. Fantastic. Um, and I guess you've, in your answer there, you've mentioned a few kind of um, keywords, things like pupillage, things like tenancy. Um, you know, for law students who are listening who are perhaps 
you know, on the fence when it comes to what they want to do with their legal degree um, or a non-legal degree, as, as you're the perfect example of. Um, what's a sort of brief overview of the kind of pupillage process um, and, and what, what's the kind of route into the, the kind of barrister, barrister side of law? So you would start either by doing a law degree or, as I did, doing a non-law degree and mm-hmm. then doing a conversion course. Um, you then go on to do the BPTC, the Bar Professional Training course, although that seems to change its name every couple of years. <laughs> um, and there seem and there's certainly some assessment of that going on because it's a, it's sometimes a prohibitively expensive course to do. I think when I did it um, back in 2011, it was about £18,000, which is just shockingly expensive. So happily... That's all under review at the moment. Um, but you would go there to do your training, hopefully with some assistance from one of the inns of court. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a barrister, there are four inns of court to join, all based in London, and you would join one of those inns. Historically, that was actually the place as a barrister. You would sort of be an apprentice barrister. You would go and live there and you would train there. They, they, they don't do all of the training now. That's done by the actual law schools now, but you still have to join you do a number of qualifying sessions there there used to be dining sessions so you would have to go for 12 dinners and then in more recent times they realized that that was possibly not a good assessment of somebody's <laughs> ability to be a barrister to go and drink some port uh, mm-hmm. at your inn of court so um, although you do still go for dinners in the very grand old dining rooms at at, at, uh, the inns of court. There's always an educational element now, so there'll be a lecture or something like that. And once you've passed your exams on the bar course, you then get called to the bar by your inn, as long as you've done all of your qualifying sessions. Mm -hmm. And then you would apply to chambers, which are um, groups of uh, self-employed barristers, effectively in a collective pooling resources to pay rent on a building for mm-hmm. members of staff etc um so you would apply there for your pupillage which for those who don't know is effectively it's like a training contract it's a 12 months sort of apprenticeship where mm-hmm. you would do six months shadowing a barrister who's called your pupil supervisor it, it, there's slightly different arrangements at each chambers you may end up having more than one but you have pupil supervisor or supervisors Mm-hmm. Um, you follow them around at court, certainly the criminal set like Red Line, which is the chambers that I'm at, you are basically going to court every day with your pupil supervisor, watching what they're doing, learning by observing and chatting through their cases with them and doing work for them as well. And then after that six months, you do another six, um, in, when we say you're on your feet, which is your practicing six months. Mm-hmm. And again, in a criminal set, at Redline Chambers, under normal circumstances, um, not in the middle of a global pandemic, mm-hmm. um, you can expect to be in court every day and you would start by doing sort of smaller hearings, building up to doing some trials and hopefully by the end of your six months, um, you're then in a position to apply for a full practising certificate um, and you would be applying for tenancy, which is the ultimate goal within a chambers either the one you've done your pupillage at or elsewhere because then you are a member of that set of chambers and you can practice from there uh, as a fully fledged barrister in your own right so that's sort of a quick an overview, uh, overview. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, it's fantastic. And, and one thing I kind of wanted to, to ask you quickly, um, I know that when it comes to solicitors, um, a lot of students think that you have to get a vacation scheme and then have to, you know, have to get that training contract from that vacation scheme. And then you, that's, you know, kind of how you qualify. But obviously, there's a there's a kind of whole route, a wide range of routes to qualification, um, means equivalent qualification and things like that. Um, is there a barrister equivalent or do you have to do pupillage to, to secure a tenancy? You have to do pupillage to, mm-hmm. to secure tenancy. Um they, I mean, just picking up on in terms of vacation schemes, we do mini pupillages, which are mm-hmm. sort of barrister equivalent, where you'd go and do a week and shadow them. There'd be no expectation when you applied that you would necessarily have had to have done a mini pupillage at mm-hmm. the chambers that you are applying to. But certainly, we would expect to see that you had done a few mini pupillages at chambers which practice the same areas of law. So if you were applying to Red Lion, we'd expect to see that you'd done two or three maybe um, mini pupillages at sets that do criminal law. The only real exception to then applying for tenancy at a later stage is if, for example, um, you had qualified as a solicitor and perhaps you were working as a solicitor advocate, so effectively doing the same job as a barrister, um, you, you may then obviously be able to effectively cross-qualify or you mm-hmm. can apply to the regulator, the Bar Standards Board, for um, to say that you effectively should do a shorter pupillage because you can demonstrate that you've got the skills and experience. So we've had in the past um, members of chambers who were solicitors who've applied rather than doing 12 months, have done three mm-hmm. months of their first six, so three months of observing and shadowing, and then three months on their feet um, on in their practicing period, so doing a truncated pupillage. But um, it's a, a very particular type of job and Mm. especially in sort of criminal law world where you're expected to be in court doing advocacy every day that's certainly something we'd want to see that you had some significant training in. I see and you've kind of hinted at it there throughout your answer in terms of what you're looking for and the kind of prerequisites um, at least for your chambers in terms of what you look for from candidates Um, and I think that's kind of the real crux of what I wanted to ask you about today which is tips from someone who has obviously been through the pupillage process yourself and then turned your hand to the other side of it and kind of recruiting candidates. Um, I think it goes without saying that, you know, like solicitors and firms in a lot of legal positions, um, the competition is really fierce. Um, And so I think people who are listening and people who are applying obviously want to try to get the best tips and advice they can to stand out from the competition and to kind of leverage all of their experiences in the best way. So, um, First, I think it'd be great to kind of just touch on quickly the, the kind of application process, at least for your firm, in terms of the kind of stages that a, 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 an aspiring barrister would go through um, and then and then kind of how that pr- pr- proceeds on when it comes to um, screening candidates and, and hopefully narrowing down to, to who you'd select. Sure. So in terms of the application, I think one thing for candidates to remember when they apply to any set of chambers is that um, it's very different the application process really for any other sort of job because Mm -hmm. the people marking the forms are the barristers there's no sort of graduate recruitment department there's no Mm -hmm. HR department or anything like that where you've got somebody whose time and their job is effectively dedicated to that one task or that sort of task in terms of recruitment so the first thing to remember is that the barristers who are marking it have probably been at work all day Mm -hmm. um, have got other work to prepare for and are sitting with a huge pile of applications next to them so um, 
the first thing to do is to try and be concise mm-hmm. and to try and stand out. And I used to absolutely hate it when people said that to me because it's such a vague term. Mm. Um, but I don't mean in the sense of you've got to write something outrageous or something particularly memorable within it. Obviously, if you can, great. But what I mean by standing out is that think of your application form as a piece of written advocacy. You're demonstrating your skills as a barrister, not only in the content of your application, but how you actually express yourself, the presentation of your form, because although barristers, especially at the criminal bar, do a lot of oral advocacy. Um, We do a lot of written advocacy as well. We do a lot of what we call skeleton arguments that um, we have to draft and submit in respect of various legal arguments and other areas of um, law. It will be almost all written advocacy. So it's just really important to remember that you're effectively sending in this application and we will look at it as though it is a piece of work. So If there are sections where it's appropriate to use headings, then do. Mm -hmm. If you can use bullet points, then do. And a great place to do that might be where you're listing your work experience. And we want to know very quickly, what was the job? What did you do? What skills have you developed that relate to this job? And it's really as simple as that. So rather than having chunks of prose that are Mm. going to push off any person reading an application form, but particularly somebody who's trying to quickly get through you know maybe 30 40 applications um in an evening Mm. it's just really helpful to set everything out clearly and just really to remember overall that this is a piece of advocacy set it out like it is an argument Mm. um and the argument you're making is why you should why you are um going to fit in in chambers why you'd be a good barrister um our chambers in fact publish all of our marking criteria and I think quite a lot of chambers are doing that Mm. now but we want to make it as transparent as possible Um, and it is clear when somebody hasn't read the marking guidance and the various competencies that we mark against when you go through their application form so I think that is probably the key thing to remember is think of it as a piece of written advocacy so how you present it not just what you're saying Mm. and make sure that you've gone on to the website and you've checked if pub- if they've um, a chambers has published their marking criteria or set out any other guidance, and just make sure that you follow it. That's really interesting that you say there's an actual criteria, kind of um, a tick box almost. You could say mm-hmm. to not exactly specifics of what you're looking for, but certainly sort of skills and things that they've hopefully demonstrated throughout the application. Um, I know that for solicitors, at least, they they kind of give an outline of the things they're looking for. But I don't think there's a, a quote unquote criteria that's been published. That sounds very formal, um, but nonetheless very very useful for the written application stage of the process. Um, and I guess after that written stage, um, obviously there are several other things um, that may begin to sort of differ from the kind of solicitor's equivalent where you might have some sort of um, competency test at home or video interviews um, and group case studies and things like that. So at least under normal circumstances, um, what's the sort of next stage when it comes to interview or the, the sort of next stage of testing for a candidate after the written application? You would have a first round interview and then a mm-hmm. second round interview where obviously the shortlist is getting shorter mm-hmm. um the first, of course the caveat to all of this is that chambers will differ and particularly across different practice areas but within mm-hmm. crime certainly you would expect to have your first round interview 
it would be a fairly quick interview in person, two or three panel members, potentially two or three panels operating on the same day. Mm-hmm. There is likely to be a short advocacy exercise with perhaps two or three questions after that. The same, and we would certainly look and um, ensure that we were asking everybody the same questions. The mm-hmm. advocacy exercise is likely to be a slightly more informal one to the one you would expect at the second round, which I'll come to in a moment. So Mm -hmm. the sort of thing you might expect would be you'd be asked to turn up, say, 20, 30 minutes before your allotted interview time. You'd be provided with a sheet with perhaps four or five different legal topics on there, probably current legal topics. So it's important to try and keep on top of any legal articles, make sure you're Mm -hmm. using the Times Law brief, any other papers that have legal supplements, just keeping on top of that, listening to podcasts, obviously. Um, (laughs) Lots of good ways to keep on top of things like that, because it will be obvious things, really, that will pop up, that will pop up from the news, and it will say, set those topics out um, and ask you to argue for or against whatever that particular proposition might be. So one that Mm -hmm. comes up a lot is um, arguing for or against the proposition that a suspect in a rape case should remain anonymous until convicted. Mm -hmm. And so you would take that, you would have the opportunity to sit, write down your points. You would go into the interview and you'd be asked to present it. What often happens in interviews is that you're asked to prepare to argue one way or the other, and they will Mm. then ask you to do the opposite of what you have prepared. (laughs) Very cruel. So cruel. (laughs) Um, So I always say to candidates, um, make sure that you've prepared for either side so that you're not taken aback. But of course, if you are in that situation where you haven't thought about it necessarily or you haven't given it as much thought as the other side of the argument, don't be afraid to just say, can I just have a moment to think about that and just pause, mm-hmm. give yourself the time, don't rush into it. Um, I think people are people are frightened of silence, but I, I don't think it is something to be frightened of. And actually mm-hmm. somebody sitting on a panel, I would think actually what that's a brave person who's actually taking the time to formulate what they mm-hmm. want to say and, and giving themselves the time to do that. But... Um, it, it will be fairly short, maybe only about 10 or 15 minutes, and you'd probably have some fairly generic follow-up questions after that, such as why did you why do you want to come to the criminal bar or mm-hmm. what's a good piece of advocacy you've seen or something like that. Um, and then, again, of course, the shortlist is shorter and we get to the second round and you would have a, a much bigger panel at that stage, probably made up of silks and chambers so the more senior people in chambers and other members of the pupillage committee Mm -hmm. again you'd be asked to come in earlier than your interview time and you would be asked to prepare another advocacy exercise but this time it would be likely to be a more formal advocacy exercise so we probably would give you a mock set Mm -hmm. of papers and we'd ask you to do a bail application or a plea and mitigation so something that you would expect to do in court in your early years then there would be a much longer interview process after that but again no real surprises just all things that you would expect either arising out of your application form or sort of standard questions that you might expect to be asked about why you want to come to our chambers and and things Mm -hmm. like that the 
one thing to think about is you can apply for pupillage before you've done your bar course so before you've actually done any formal advocacy training and so I think Mm -hmm. some people come to these interviews and feel that they might be at a disadvantage to those who've done the bar course or those who are currently on the bar course and so will have had some real practical feedback and training in respect to doing that advocacy Mm. the thing to do um, is to know that that is likely to, to come along is to know that we know what stage you're at and we will take that into account when we're assessing you but is to try and be proactive and if you don't know anybody who's on the bar course you don't know any barristers then contact the inns of court they're very supportive they've got lots and lots of barristers who act as mentors in every area of practice and they will be able to put you in touch with somebody who will be more than happy to sit down with you look at your application form um, and give you some tips about the advocacy exercise or whatever it might be for that particular area of practice for the chambers that you're applying to. Fantastic. And you kind of, you kind of hinted at it um, at the beginning of your answer when it came to um, you know writing and it came to kind of being really clear and kind of demonstrating those quote-unquote advocacy skills in your writing um, as well when it came to um, your application. Um, and I think that's that's kind of a very common understanding of what barristers do they're in court and they're making these arguments and so on um aside from advocacy then what what else is it you think you're kind of looking for um in a i won't say perfect candidate because there obviously isn't one but when it comes to the kind of strengths and skills that you're looking for when when you're going through that interview process um what is it other than advocacy that you think makes makes a really great candidate i think general skills in terms of analytical skills, attention to detail, advocacy, Mm -hmm. all those sorts of skills that you might expect that we'd look for actually in in lots of different sorts of jobs. Mm -hmm. Perhaps um, what is more specific, I think, when we are looking at candidates is perseverance and Mm -hmm. at, at, at each stage, getting pupillage, getting tenancy, building a practice, um, there, there has to be an element of perseverance on the part of that person. It's um, Sometimes it's not an easy job and you'd be dealing with long hours and travel and it, in any area of law, but certainly from my experience um, as a criminal barrister, you're often dealing with pretty tough subject matters and um, dealing with people who are very vulnerable mm. or who might be quite difficult um, and you are if you do apply to be to to chambers rather than to be an employed barrister within a firm or within a government department or something like that if you are applying to chambers you're going to be self-employed and that it isn't for everybody it's appealing Mm -hmm. to some people um and it's totally unappealing to other people (laughs) and you have to manage your own practice um all the sort of precarious nature that goes along with being self-employed which is really under the microscope at the moment um sort of what safety nets are in place and the answer is not very many once you're into practice and you sort of have to think about all of those things yourself so i think it would be ensuring certainly from my perspective when i sit on those panels yes i want somebody who's got the basic skills that I think means that they will be a good barrister and that they'll be a good advocate and that they've done well academically. Yes, I expect to see all of that, but I would also want on top of that somebody who I think is realistic, who understands 
the pressures of the job, who understands that it is not an easy job that's not for everybody, that they have considered all of that and that they still want to do that job. That's what I want to see because there will be lots of people who would be fantastic advocates and would do a great job, but actually once they start doing it, it's the other bits that they don't like and it puts them off and they end up... um, you know, feeling pretty depressed, I would imagine, and, mm. and wanting to go off and do something else. So I always want to know, even just for that own that person's own sanity, that they understand what the job entails. And I think it's really important to get that across in an interview um, because it, in a lot of ways, it's a hard job to get experience of without actually doing the job. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you can do many pupillages, that's why it's important to do these, but it's important to ask as many questions as you possibly can, do as much research as you possibly can, so that you can demonstrate to the panel that you're coming into this job with your eyes open and that you're prepared to work hard and you're prepared to make the sacrifices that you might need to make um, to, to do well in it. This episode of the More From Law podcast is sponsored by Get Into Law. If you're listening, it's like you're looking to break into or learn more about the legal profession. Get Into Law are a law careers advice community that's on a mission to build the most active, value-driven legal platform in the world through social media. They help support aspiring lawyers by providing skills, tools, and resources you need to begin your legal career. If you want access to their latest daily tips, guides, and resources, including some I've written myself, be sure to follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn by searching for the handle Get Into Law. And we've talked a lot in this episode about the pupillage application process and kind of outlining some of your tips for that. But of course, there will be people listening, primarily students who are kind of torn between, you know, the barrister versus solicitor route. I think that's often the dynamic that's presented in a lot of law schools. Um, and obviously, without practical experience, or, you know, if you're just starting out your first year at uni, you might not know many lawyers, and it's, it's hard to kind of get a grip as to what the differences are and which one would be more suited to you. So um, at least from the barrister perspective, um, you know, what do you think are the kind of the key differences um, between those two routes, whilst there are many um, in the legal profession? Um, and how can you help sort of someone decide as to which they'd be a better fit for, or which they'd enjoy more? I think one of the key points, so I won't go over that one again, but is is being self-employed and whether that really is appealing to somebody. And I think you have to be pretty self-motivated to mm-hmm. go into that side of it. And some people maybe lack that skill or don't particularly want to exercise that mm-hmm. skill. And um, and so that is, is a real key. Some people love it and think it's fantastic and love thinking, right, well, I could... Um, I could sit all day watching the television, but now I know that I'm going to have to work all night. But that's my choice. You know, some people do operate in that way. Mm -hmm. Other people prefer to have a structure in place and you're much more likely to get that going down the solicitor route, being employed, working in an office environment. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the criminal bar, People tend to say, oh, well, if you want to be an advocate, go to the bar. Now, the flip side to that is you could go and be a solicitor advocate. You would then be entitled to do the same advocacy that you could do um, at the bar. And Mm. you might want to do that because you then end up having a combination of having a bit of an office environment, having a bit of structure and being employed whilst also getting to do advocacy. What I would say about that is if your primary motivation is advocacy and you want that to be at the heart of your job, then I would still say the bar is the place to do that. 
not mm. because I think um, barristers are better advocates than solicitor advocates, um, because that isn't true, but it's where the focus lies in terms of your mm. training. Lots of people say, oh, I'm a born advocate. Oh, that person, they were a born advocate. They should be in court. Well, that actually is, is a load of nonsense. It's another skill that you can acquire, that you develop by observation and practice. And with that in mind, the place, in my view, to do that is at the bar, simply because that is where the focus lies. So you have that opportunity to shadow somebody for at least six months. You have the opportunity to do advocacy in your own right for six months. Um, with the safety net of still having a supervisor, you're connected to your supervisor's insurance. So, you know, there are safety nets in place. You've, you've basically um, got your training wheels on. You're mm. not being pushed off on your own just yet. So you get that 12 months focus on advocacy in the background. You also have, certainly at our chambers, we have in-house advocacy sessions with silks running the sessions giving fantastic insight and um, setting out their experience and, and you get to benefit from that as a pupil. You'd also go to your inn and you would do a pupillage course with them before you were actually on your feet. And again, that is very intense. Um, sometimes it was a little bit of a shock to the system, but it, it, <laughs> it ultimately it was a fantastic course to do. So you get all of that all of that focus on advocacy, written advocacy, ethics, all the things that goes along that go along with that. And that I think is what you don't necessarily get as a solicitor advocate, who obviously they are have fantastic experience and they get to go out and they do all of these hearings, but they don't get the focus on that as much as you do when you go to the bar. So I still think if you want to be an advocate, that is your primary motivation that the place to do that is still at the bar simply because you have the opportunity um, a greater opportunity to develop that skill Um, and of course, we can't record a podcast in March, April, or whoever knows what month it is, <laughs> without talking about the current situation and everything that's been going on. A lot's been said already, and it'd just be interesting to hear your thoughts, really, um, you know, from the barrister's perspective and from the recruitment perspective. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on the bar profession generally um, and remote working and kind of, you know, we're hearing a lot now about, you know, digital courts, online courts, things like that. What's your just sort of brief analysis on everything that's going on and how it's going to affect the profession and the kind of judicial system generally? Well, the first thing to say is it's, we were sort of going down this route anyway. And I mean that in the sense of when I started pupillage, and this is only six years ago, we were still mm -hmm. getting our papers sent to chambers. We had our um, little pigeonhole system your papers would be popped in for the next day that was still happening when I first started and then over the years everything has become digital so we're now expected to access all of our papers on a centralized digital case system for um, cases prosecuted by the Crown Prosecution Service 
the only thing that we weren't getting were things like you know cctv other things that had to be on disc even those things now um we finally moved into the 21st century and, and they're able to provide those things um to us in an online setting so actually people were not going into chambers as much as they used to and i think that made it more difficult from a, a junior tenant perspective or as a pupil to try and get to know people in chambers um to develop those relationships but um we were slowly sort of moving towards more working from home um dealing mm-hmm. with things in a, in an online forum so happily i think we were sort of had had a little bit of training before this all came along but mm-hmm. obviously the major difference really is that court hearings aren't going ahead or certainly trials aren't going ahead at the moment and we don't know when that is going to change and all other hearings apart from I think some hearings in the magistrates court now all other hearings they are attempting to do um, either over Skype for business or Mm -hmm. they're doing it over the phone um, so effectively as a telephone conference and that has been a very odd adjustment (laughs) sitting um, going from you know what is seen as being a very formal traditional job where we still wear horsehair wigs and gowns and it's in a very formal setting and um, being in these courtrooms to all of a sudden sitting in the spare room <laughs> you know, <laughs> with with a judge just popping up on Skype for business um, yeah. and there'd been some teething problems that you'd expect but actually I've now done quite a few of these um, video hearings and they are actually you think why weren't we doing this before because often Mm. it'll be a five ten minute hearing something very admin based um, that you think gosh we used to track out to court for the same amount of money um, to, Mm. to make a ten minute appearance to come all the way back out again when actually this would have been a perfect way to do it. Everybody's able to express themselves. It's very clear. And then it's done all from the comfort of your own house. So I think actually that might be something we see changing is that now that they've stress tested the system or they've been forced to anyway, that that might continue as we go forward. What what I don't want to see and I hope I never see will be, mm. en- will be hearings of any significance. So a sentence hearing or a trial um there's obviously been lots of articles popping up and people talking about it and working groups looking at how we're going to manage things if the courts remain closed um but what i wouldn't want to see is is a trial taking place virtually i think it would just undermine the entire process so that is not something i'd like to see changing um from a sort of pupillage committee perspective we're obviously thinking a lot at the moment about our current pupils, so um, who aren't really getting out to court for obvious reasons. Um, and so we are doing lots of online advocacy sessions, which, mm-hmm. again, was quite strange at first, having somebody in one window being a witness and then someone in another window cross-examining <laughs> them and then someone in another window. But it's actually worked very well and it's meant... We've been able to do advocacy every week, um, which is much more than than we were able to do before because getting everybody into one room at the same time and organising that 
is much harder than just getting everybody to log in on their computer for 40 minutes. Mm. Um, so there have been some plus sides in a sense, but we've obviously got to, to focus on them, make sure they're getting the experience that we can give them during this time because ultimately mm-hmm. they all want to apply for their full practising certificates come September. Um, and we've also got new peoples who are due to start this year that we we need to think about as well. It's all very difficult, but I think we just yeah. need to be um, to adapt as much as we can. We've sort of been forced to do it, um, but I think it's actually worked quite well. And we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about how we can um, manage things, how we can keep as much normality as possible for our current peoples and for our peoples who will be starting with us hopefully later in the year. But it's certainly been a huge adjustment and I think mm. um, we'll continue to we'll continue to feel the effects, perhaps in some ways in a positive way, as I said about hearings and perhaps doing more digital working and doing more um, digital training and things like that. That might be a positive of it, but... Um, we just need to all keep communicating with each other and, and staying um, as adaptable as we can. Absolutely fantastic insights there. Um, like everything else you've shared in this episode, and it's really interesting to hear your thoughts and everything from the barrister's perspective, having read and learned a bit about the things from the solicitor's perspective there. So thanks for sharing your thoughts for that and for sharing everything that you've discussed this episode. I really appreciate it. Um, Pleasure. Where can people go to learn more about yourself and Redline Chambers um, and everything that we've talked about this episode? Well, uh, our website, which will pop up if you look for Redline Chambers, um, we've actually mm-hmm. got a whole section on on pupillage which is very easy to navigate once you're on the main page um lots of helpful things on there which i hope are helpful generally whether you want to apply to our chambers or not um but websites are actually i should just briefly say are a very um, good port of call for anybody it sounds obvious to say but for anybody mm-hmm. applying because most places will have a pupillage section which will set out lots of things about their program things that you can then feed into your application form Um, but you can also have a look at some of their junior tenants see what sort of experience they had before they came to the bar and where they perhaps where they studied and see um, the sorts of people who are being taken on in those sets so um, certainly have a look at our website and I hope there's lots of helpful information on there. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for sharing all of this helpful information um, in this discussion. Definitely really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the More From Law podcast. If you enjoyed the episode and want to support the show, please share it with your network and leave a review on the iTunes store. It's really appreciated. If you want to stay up to date on the show, follow and subscribe to the More From Law podcast on your podcast platform of choice, or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at the profile Harry Clark Law. See you in the next episode.